Good to see you in church this morning, and we've got a good crowd here. I know I was uh, looking just a little bit ago on the live stream. It looks like we've got a good crowd there, too, so I'm thankful that you're here today, whether you're in person or whether you're watching online. We welcome you. I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is where we will be today, this morning, and this evening, looking at uh, a text that at first uh, glance might be a little shocking. Do you ever, have you ever been somewhere and somebody said something that just kind of caught you off guard? I remember it was uh, in January uh, and, uh, in uh, 2008. I started uh, graduate school at SAU. I was working at SAU, and so I started taking some grad classes, and I went into my very first graduate class. And the first thing the professor said when he got in there and he, he introduced himself, and he said, I'm going to tell you this first. If your mama calls me about your grade, I will personally see to it that you are removed from this program. He said, because you're adults. And it kind of caught me off guard, not because I expected my mother to call. As a matter of fact, I knew she wouldn't, you know. I mean, she's watching this morning online. I saw she was there just a little bit ago, but I knew she did. She never interfered with my undergraduate work, so I knew she wouldn't be checking in on my graduate-level work either, but... It caught me off guard that a graduate-level professor would even have to say that. That your mama better not call me because you're adults. Take care of your own business. But it really shouldn't have shocked me. Because working at the university, I was very familiar with the fact that a lot of parents are, we'll say, extremely involved in their child's life. Okay, we had a term for some of these. We called them helicopter parents because they always hovered. It got worse as time went on, and I heard the term described one time as a lawnmower mama because some of these mamas would try to go out ahead of their kids and clear the path, cutting down anything that was in their child's way. Now, sometimes in life, wouldn't you just love to have a lawnmower mama out there getting rid of all the trouble that's ahead of you and all that? In the moment, it would be real nice. But, you know, in reality, that's pretty detrimental to the overall development of the human being because we need to experience the hard times in life to grow, to grow as individuals and to grow in our spiritual lives, we find as we read in James chapter 1 this morning. As we look here, it's a good reminder as we begin a new year that I hope is nothing like last year. But I'll make you a promise this morning. Okay, I promise it's going to be hard times this year. Hopefully not anything like last year, but there's going to be hard times this year. How do we face that? How do we face the hard times throughout this year? James gives us some words of wisdom. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We're going to stop there this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you loved us enough that you inspired holy men of God to write down things that uh, 
uh, would inspire us and tell us what you want us to know today. And Father, I thank you that these things are just as true today as they were some 2,000 years ago and longer when they were written down. I pray that you would help us this morning speak through me and give me the words that you'd have me to say this morning, that we may leave here changed, we may leave here with hope and ready to face the days ahead. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I love the book of James, and I know, I, I think, I say I know this, I think Tim went through this a little while back with his class and studied the book of James. I know I walked through the book of James with the teenagers a year or two ago. It all runs together. But uh, I love the book of James because it's full of practical advice for our lives. And so as we look here, you know, one thing that, that uh, I find interesting, James is thought to be the earliest of the New Testament writings. That of all the New Testament, James was most likely written first. And James, the writer, is the biological half-brother of Jesus. That's who scholars believe this James is. Now, it's important to know some context of what's going on in and around when he writes it. And now scholars, they don't 100% agree on exactly when James wrote it and under what circumstance, but they believe it's, he wrote it around one of, one of two instances. That James either wrote this as a result of what happened following the stoning of Stephen, or that he wrote it following the killing of the disciple James, the brother of John. And it was at that same time that Peter was arrested. Either way, at both of those times, Christianity was under attack. Christians were being persecuted. And as you look there in verse 1, he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, he's talking about the Jewish people who are scattered because of the persecution, the Jewish Christians who are scattered because of the persecution that's going on at that time. We live in completely different times than James. We live on the other side of the world from where these people lived. But I don't think I have to do much convincing this morning to tell you that Christianity is under attack still today. In a big way, we can relate in some ways to what these people were feeling. Now, not completely. Nobody's tried to kill me for my faith. Not recently, not ever. I don't think anybody's tried to kill you for your faith. But nonetheless, Christianity is under attack in America. And so we can relate to some extent with what the people are feeling as they're reading this letter from James. This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 2 through 4. Tonight, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8. So I hope you'll come back tonight because there's some more practical application from this morning's sermon Tonight, I hope you'll come back for that. But this morning as we look at this, we find in verse 2 what I think is this very shocking statement. James says, count it all joy when you go through trials. When you face the various trials in life, he says, be joyful. And so I'm thinking, yeah, right, right? I mean, we go through hard times. The last thing from a human perspective that we are often focused on is being joyful. And so you think he has to mean something else. This has to be one of those Bible verses that if you know the Greek and all that kind of stuff, it's got a different meaning 
than what it says here in our English translation. So let's take a look. Is that what, is that what James means? We say, he says, count it all joy when you go through various trials. So let's look at that word trials. Does he really mean trials? Hard times? Now, if you have a King James Version Bible, it translates it temptations, which is probably not the best translation. If you look back to the Greek, which I'm not going to ever try to pronounce a Greek word unless I'm confident of it, because I don't do Spanish, much less Greek, you know? And so, uh, but, but if we look back at that word that, that's translated here as trials, do you know what it means? It means trouble. It means something that breaks the pattern of peace in your life. Something that makes you uncomfortable. Something that steals your joy. Something that takes away your happiness. So when James says, when you fall into various trials, he's really talking about hard times in life. And since he's being the bearer of such good news here, notice that he doesn't say, if you fall into trials. He says, when? James is absolutely confident as he writes to these Jewish Christians and as he writes to us today, he's absolutely confident that life will bring hard times. He's absolutely confident that there will be times in your life when the pattern of peace is broken. He's confident there will be times in your life when your joy has been taken. There's going to be times in your life when you're not happy. And he says, despite that, count it all joy. Okay, so we know he really means hard times when he says trials. So the whole count it all joy must mean something different. Okay, I mean, that's what we're thinking. Because there's no way we can really be happy going through a hard time, right? So we look at that. Now count here is a financial term. Think about it this way. Probably everybody in the room who is of legal age has applied for a loan at some point in your life. You go down, you see Miss Angie, and she says, ain't nothing I can do to help you. But here's a piece of paper you can fill out, right? A little loan application. And you fill out the loan application, put all the various information they want. And she's going to send it over to somebody in another office, and they're going to evaluate that application. You see, that's what this term count here in verse 1 means. It means evaluate. And they're going to evaluate that loan application, and they're going to look at things like how much money do you make? They're going to look at what other kind of debt do you have? They're going to look at your credit history. In other words, do you pay the bills that you have? Okay? Those are the types of things they value when they're evaluating your loan application. And so James here in verse 2 it's saying you have to evaluate what's going on in your life and see it as joyful, even if it's trials. How? It's all based on what you value. See, at the bank, they value how much money you make, whether you pay your bills, that kind of stuff. So what do we value that allows us to see things as joyful? Here's some examples. If we value comfort more than we value character, Trials are going to upset us. Trials are going to hurt us in life. If we value material and physical things more than we value spiritual things, we're never going to count it all joy. If we value what politicians say 
more than, what, more than we value what the Word of God says, you know what? You're never going to find peace in your life. So this week, big stuff happening this week, turn TV off and open your Bible. Value what this says more than what they say on TV, and you'll have a whole lot more peace than you'll have watching the TV all day long. If we live only for the present and not for the future, we'll be bitter and we won't have joy. Here's what Paul said. Paul, Paul explained it this way. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, he says, life's hard. Life's really hard. But the joy of heaven is going to absolutely blow your mind. And so as we read what Paul says, he's saying, we use James's term, count, evaluate. I picture a scale. And I picture the Apostle Paul saying the sufferings of this present time go on this side of the scale. And the glory that's going to be revealed in heaven goes on this side of the scale. And can I tell you the glory of heaven is going to outweigh the trials of this life so much that we can do nothing but be joyful thinking about what's to come. That's what James is saying. Evaluate the trials of today based on the promise of Jesus Christ for tomorrow. The writer of Hebrews says that's the way Jesus managed the cross. He says as we run our race of life, we focus on one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. He says is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear that? The way Jesus endured the cross was by focusing on the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him is what allowed Jesus to accomplish the will of the Father. And the psalmist reminds us of this. Another beautiful verse in Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. How do you endure the night? How do you endure the hard times? By remembering that the joy comes in the morning. That's the promise that Jesus has given to all of us who have trusted in Him as Savior. That the joy is ahead. And that ought to help us get through the everyday trials of life that come just because we're human. Do you know we have trials just because we're human? That might be sickness. That might be an accident, that may be some disappointment in life, that may be aches and pains and groaning just because things start to ache and pain and groan as we get older. That might be the loss of a friendship, the death of a loved one. And we could go on and on and on and on and on about the trials of life. Most likely we could take a survey and go around the room and have everybody name one and we'd be able to name enough trials that nobody named the same thing twice. Some trials come because we're Christians. That's what Paul told his disciples in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, says we must endure many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. Then he said, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. So the first thing we learn there in verse 1, is that we should evaluate life's trials. 
count them, evaluate them, based on the promise of Jesus from what's ahead. Proper evaluation of trials is the key to joy. Move on to that verse 3. He says, and know this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. James says it's important to know that these various trials are a means to test our faith and produce patience. And you say, I really don't want any more patience, right? It may be easier to understand what he means if we use a really dirty word. You'll have to forgive me for using this word in the pulpit. Exercise. When he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, that word testing, we can swap that out for exercise. And James says the exercising of your faith produces patience. Think about for a minute that guy or that girl who's in the gym lifting weights. Now, the goal of the weightlifter is not to go in there and just completely wear out his muscles, but to strengthen his muscles. So every time he exercises those muscles, they get a little bit stronger. And they get a little bit stronger. And now as he first begins, I can tell you this part. I can testify to the beginning and then the losing it. Way back when, before I was married, I worked out at Physiques a lot. I remember when I first joined Physiques, and I went to one of those classes they had. And I ain't never moved like that before. And for the next several days, I didn't move at all. When you first start exercising, it can be painful. But then you start seeing the results of it. And if you keep it up, you see the results more and more and more. And if you ever stop, I can testify to this too, all that hard work goes away. And you begin to lose it. And what James is saying here in verse 3 is that's how our faith works. And that's why God is not a lawnmower God. God doesn't go out before us plowing down everything that, that could stand in our way so that life will just be easy for us. Now that's how a lot of people, and unfortunately that's how some TV preachers and others present the Christian life. That it's all going to be just beautiful, it's going to be roses, it's going to be happy, it's going to be so easy. James says, and Jesus says, and Paul said, and everybody else who will be honest with you says, it's not that easy. As a matter of fact, God allows us to endure the hard times to build our faith so that we can exercise our faith, so that our faith will be stronger, so that we can trust Him more the next time we face something even harder. There's some beautiful illustrations all throughout the Bible. One that, that really uh, hit home with me is in Judges chapter 2. And you can turn there if you want. You don't have to, but in Judges chapter 2, we have a, the part of the story of, of the nation of Israel uh, going to uh, uh, inherit the promised land, and, and he's talking about that. And, you know, God could have walked in, and God could have completely wiped out all the nations who inhabited the promised land and made it easy for Israel just to walk in. They could just walk in, set up camp, and just been, everything would have been beautiful. But see, God knew that the nation of Israel's faith needed to be built. So what did God do to help build the faith of the nation of Israel? In Judges chapter 2, verse 21, 
it says this, I also will no longer drive out before them, that's the nation of Israel, any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hands of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in, the, in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. Listen to this. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. You see, God left obstacles in the way of the nation of Israel so that they could learn to trust him so that their faith could be tested and God could see whether or not they were going to obey. You know, I think if he did that for Israel, who is called his chosen people, I believe he does that today for the church, whom he calls his chosen people. God could have wiped out those nations and allowed Israel just to walk in with so much greater ease. But the exercising of their faith would lead to greater obedience and would remind them in the future that, hey, we faced this hard time, but we knew God was right beside us the whole time. And it makes it easier to face another day. James says the testing of our faith produces patience. Another way you could, you could say that, according to William Barclay, is unwavering constancy. Now I've really had to study on that for a minute. Unwavering constancy. It means the stronger our faith gets, the stronger our faith becomes, the less likely it is that the trials of life are going to throw us off. We become unwavering, and we're able to become constant in our walk with the Lord. If we constantly look for human fixes in life, we're not exercising our faith. But if we're trusting God and allowing Him to show us how to get through, we are. And when we're not exercising our faith, it gets harder and harder to face those troubles. James tells us that exercising our faith, trusting that God has everything under control, and that these circumstances are only temporary, makes us stronger each time we face trouble. Verse 4, to wrap things up this morning. He says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, some of you may think, well, I'm already perfect. Well, you're wrong. James says you're not there yet. <laughs> he says you've got to go through some hard times. You've got to go through some perfecting before you get there. But do you see the ultimate result of this patience? The ultimate result of this exercising your faith during hard times. He says you'll be made perfect. You'll be made complete. You'll be made to lack Nothing. What does he mean by perfect? He's not talking about your hair day. He's not talking about that your outfit all matches and everybody likes you. 
He's talking about spiritual maturity. He says you'll be made more spiritually mature. You'll be closer to God. And you'll be ready for the task that God has for you to do. You see, too many Christians are not able to do what God wants them to do because they refuse to exercise. And so then when it comes time to do what God's called them to do, they're not spiritually strong enough to do it. We need to exercise our faith so we'll have the spiritual strength to love others. You know, it takes a lot of spiritual strength to love others and to love God, to obey God. Those are the two biggest things we're called to do. To be perfect, to be mature. What does it mean by complete? Now here's where I think it gets good. He says you'll be complete. That means that no part of your character has any imperfection. My character has some imperfection. How about yours, okay? If you don't think it does, come talk to me later. We'll point them out. Our characters could all use some work. But this word translated complete was used to describe the animals used for sacrifice in the temple. This word that James uses is translated complete. That's how they described the sacrificial animals in the temple. Now these animals could have no disfigurements. They could have no blemishes. James's original readers would have been intimately familiar with what that meant. But you know, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we're to present our bodies. We're to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. James says you want to present your living sacrifice in a way that's acceptable. It needs to be complete. It needs to be lacking blemishes. How do you do that? James says that gradually, over time, exercising your faith. You see that? He says in verse 4, let patience have its perfect work. Gradually, over time. The exercising of our faith removes the weak spots in our faith. It removes the blemishes from our character because exercising our faith draws us closer to God and more of who He wants us to be, and we become entirely fit for the work God's called us to do. So this year you're going to face trials. This year you're going to face hard times. How we respond is going to determine whether we grow more into who God wants us to be or whether we continue to stagnate. And those unused spiritual muscles get weaker and weaker until the point we just can't deal with it anymore. We don't know where to go in life. God showed us how, where to go. It's right here to His Word. And as we, we're going to prepare for our invitation, the musicians are going to come. And here's the invitation today. I invite you today to make a commitment to evaluate all the troubles over this next year. You can start with today. You can start with this week. But as you move through the year, you evaluate the troubles of life in light of the joy that's to come. That you allow your faith to be exercised and grow stronger 
and allow God to work in your life in whatever way He pleases. But I'll tell you this, and this is the bottom line. You can't exercise a faith you don't have. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven, if you can't say that with absolute confidence, if you've never experienced salvation with Jesus Christ, you don't have the right kind of faith to exercise. So if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, the invitation for you is to do that. To place your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can begin to properly exercise that faith to face tomorrow without any hesitation. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'd be saved. You can do that today, and I hope you will. Whatever God's laid on your heart, let's stand and we'll sing.